We are continuing our series. This is actually the second to the last message in this series that we've been doing called Who Does Jesus Love? The answer may surprise you. And today we are going to be looking at this story here in John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. And we've entitled this Jesus Loves Messy People. And uh, you'll understand why we titled that in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we want to invite you right now by your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to minister to our hearts, to challenge us, to enlighten us. I pray, God, for your grace as a teacher here, that you would just enable me right now to communicate your word with clarity and sensitivity But also, Lord, that it would go forth through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. How do you do with messy? Do messy places drive you crazy? Where you just, you know, can't function until everything is just cleaned up. Some of you are smiling because you're like, yeah, that's me. How about this? How do you deal with messy people? Those who are, you know, just unorganized and and things are kind of chaotic. You know, you go in their room and it's just a mess. Or you go in their office and their desk is a mess. Is it hard for you to have a meeting in an office like that? Is it like fingers on the chalkboard that you just, you know, really, really can't deal with that? How about this one? How do you do or deal with messy situations? I'm talking about where there's a lot of drama that's involved. Is that overwhelming to you? Well, today we're going to see how Jesus isn't afraid of messy situations and how Jesus loves messy people. And I'm speaking primarily about people whose lives have been messed up by sin, that have been messed up by wrong choices. And in our text today, in John chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus dealing with a woman who has literally messed up her life by committing the sin of adultery. But in this story, we will see the heart of Jesus toward those who are involved in sexual sin. Now, I thought about titling this message, because we've been talking about all these weeks, you know, who does Jesus love? The answer might surprise you. And and so I, I thought about titling it, who does Jesus love? Sexually active people. But my wife said, I think that's a little too scandalous. <laughs> She said, I don't think that's a good idea, and uh, somebody scrolling along and seeing that might think that you're saying the wrong thing. So I literally, no joke, I, I reached out to my friend who pastors in Vegas, in Sin City, and I said, hey, what would you call this message? I told him what I was trying to do, and, and he came up with this title of Messy People, So I thought, I better listen to the guy who's in the thick of all of it, you know, in Sin City. So that's what we're calling it today. But let's consider this story beginning in verse 2. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Let me give you the setting of this story. This takes place the day after the Feast of Tabernacles ended. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a yearly feast that took place there in Israel where it was sort of like a national campout. And the people from Israel would come from all over the region and they would come and basically stay the whole week in these tents and they would pitch their tents in a way that they were able to kind of have a visual of the Temple Mount area. And they did this to commemorate the 40 years that God had led the children of Israel through the wilderness. And that was a big part of their history. And so it was a time of, of teaching, a time of remembering how God had led them with the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. It was a, a time of, of remembering and celebrating God's miraculous provision of the manna every day and the quail, and especially the water that came out of the rock. And one of the ways that they uh, celebrated and remembered this is every single day the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam with a pitcher. And they'd fill up that pitcher with water. They'd come back up to the temple mount and they would pour the pitcher of water upon the altar. And the people would celebrate as it was commemorating God's miraculous provision for them of the water out in the desert. And they did that every single day. But on the eighth day, the priest would go down with the pitcher, but he wouldn't fill it up with water. And he'd come back up to the Temple Mount and he would go and tip it over, but no water would come out. And it would be a very silent and solemn moment because what it was symbolizing was that the Messiah hadn't come yet. But when the Messiah would come, that, that he would come and he would bring refreshment to Israel both nationally and individually again. So I want you to picture that scene. The priests are on the Temple Mount. People are all around the area there in their tents and they're looking and, and the priest pours it out, but there's no water that comes out. And it's this very silent, somber kind of moment just reminding them they're still waiting for the Messiah. But it's in that moment, if you look at chapter 7, verse 37, that Jesus stands up and cries out these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When Jesus did that, it was a bold declaration on the part of Jesus that he was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And notice the people's reaction in verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. When they heard Jesus say that, they were convinced that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But that wasn't just a bold declaration by Jesus that he was the Messiah. It was also, when he cried out, it was a beautiful declaration that he was the only one that can quench the spiritual thirst in hearts. Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, and the answer would be, we all do. We're all thirsty. We all are thirsting in our hearts for, for love. We're all thirsting in our hearts. We have that void inside of us that can only be filled by Jesus. And the woman in the story before us here in John chapter 8, she is a woman who has been trying to quench her thirst for love in the wrong way. We could say that she was looking for love in all the wrong places. But Jesus is going to reveal to her what real love looks like and where real love is found. Here's our outline for today. We want to first of all consider the sinful woman. Then we're going to look at the scheming accusers. And then we're going to wrap it up by talking about our sympathetic Savior. So first of all, we consider this sinful woman. Look at verse 4 again. The emphasis is put on this fact that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in my mind, I picture her being brought into that courtyard and put before Jesus and the people in just the bedsheet of the bed that she had been sinning in. They come and they present her before the Lord, and, and she's there standing there in her shame, 
in her embarrassment. It's written all over her face. But don't forget this. This is somebody's daughter. This is maybe somebody's wife. This is possibly somebody's mother. Can you imagine the shame, the guilt, as everyone is just staring at her, exposed before everyone? Her sin, exposed before everyone. Now, it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't tell us her name. And I think the reason for that is God isn't interested in embarrassing her. He's interested in saving her. And I want you to note that Jesus doesn't run from her mess. No, he leans into the mess. He gets down in the dirt to bring freedom to this weary soul. So first of all, we have this woman who has made a mess of her life because she's engaged in this sin of adultery. Number two, we have the scheming accusers. Look at verse four again. They come and say, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such a one should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Caught in the very act. It makes me wonder what happened the night before. And if she was really caught in the very act, where was the dude? Where was the guy in this? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 22, it was very, very clear that when two people were caught in the act of adultery, that both of them were to be brought forth in order to be punished. But they just bring the woman. And verse 6 gives us some insight into what's going on here, that this was a trap. Though guilty, this woman was a part of a pharisaical sting. That she was a pawn in a bigger game. The bait that was meant to catch a bigger fish. And many scholars suggest that the reason why the guy wasn't brought forth is that he was one of their friends. That this whole thing had been set up. That she had been seduced and brought into this relationship. That she was to be this pawn in order to trap Jesus. So the Pharisees come bearing the weight of the law of Moses because the seventh commandment declares, thou shalt not commit adultery. It was considered one of the big three. Thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not be involved in idolatry, and thou shalt not commit adultery. All of them were punishable by death according to the law of God spelled out in Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. But what's interesting, those two uh, passages of Scripture don't give any details of how this capital punishment was to be carried out. So in the Mishnah, which is the man-made Jewish commentary on the law of God, they gave an idea of how this should be carried out. And this is what they wrote, that the adulterers were to be placed knee-deep in a box of manure. Perhaps this is where the expression or the origin of the expression being knee-deep in trouble comes from. After being placed in the box of manure, the victims were literally pelted with stones until they died. And after the execution, a tree was planted in the box of manure to stand in the city as a testimony of this is what happens to people who commit adultery. So a town with a lot of trees might be a shady place for more reasons than one, all right? (laughs) So the Pharisees come, armed with the law of Moses, and they say, Moses said that she should be stoned. But what do you say? The trap was set. You see, if Jesus refused to execute the proper punishment, the religious leaders would then accuse him of being soft on sin. And they would say, how can Jesus be the Messiah? He doesn't even follow the law of Moses. But on the other hand, if Jesus agreed with them and said, yeah, I think she should be stoned, that would have instantly ruined his reputation of being a friend of sinners. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, that leads us to consider our sympathetic Savior. Look at verse 6. 
It says, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I like that phrase. It's like he's just not even listening. He's sort of ignoring them. He's just kind of doodling in the dirt. But then verse 7 says that they continued asking him. The idea is they're pushing him for a response. These are proud and presumptuous men, and they think they have Jesus trapped. But then it says, he raised himself up and said to them, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This is an amazing response. And it made this, you see, a spiritual issue rather than a legal issue. You see, Jesus is not arguing the Mosaic law. He's not arguing the seventh commandment. He is not arguing about Roman versus Jewish justice. What he's saying by that statement is, you guys, you lack the qualifications to be her judge and her jury. Because in order to be her judge and jury, her judge and executioner, you have to be without sin, and none of them were. In fact, there was only one person qualified on that temple mount who had the uh, the ability to be both judge and executioner, and that was Jesus himself, because he was without sin. But all of them were disqualified. But then it says that he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. And of course, the intriguing question is, what did he write? What was he writing? And we're not told what Jesus wrote, but there is a clue that's embedded in the original text. You see, the word wrote in the Greek is the word grapho. We get our our word graphic from it. But John attaches a prefix to the word grapho, and it's kata, And kata means to be in opposition against or to be against something. So katagrapho, this is what the word he uses means, to write against. And I want you to notice the effect of what Jesus wrote in verse 9. It says, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. They drop their stones and they leave. And many people, many scholars have have thought that the reaction, they think that what Jesus wrote based upon their reaction is that he was writing down names, their names, and a sin next to their name, and one by one they drop their stones and they walk out. We don't know exactly what Jesus wrote, but we know whatever he wrote, it uh, awakened inside of those Pharisees their conscience and convicted them of their own sin. And so one by one, these guys leave, leaving just Jesus and the woman. And and I want us to note four things about our sympathetic Savior and how he deals with this woman. Look at verse 9. It says, And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up, He saw no no one but the woman. I want you to note that last phrase in verse 10. He saw no one but the woman. This is the first thing I want you to note. Jesus is dealing with her here as a person. He's not playing to the crowd. He's not addressing the crowd. He is zeroed in on this one person, this messy Person, this person with a messy life because of her sin, and he is zeroed in on only her. Jesus said of himself that he is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And this is a reminder to us that no life is insignificant to him. That every single person is important. Our text tells us that he saw only The second thing I want you to note is that Jesus treats her with respect. He says to her, woman. The word woman there is gune in the Greek, and it's the exact same word that Jesus used on two different occasions in addressing his own mother. That he would say to her, woman. It was a term of endearment. It was a term of respect. 
what Jesus is doing here is he's not seeing her as an adulterer. He sees her as a woman who has made a mess of her life because of her sin. So he speaks tenderly to her. He doesn't use condemning language. He doesn't call her a slut or a whore. He says, gune, woman. He's saying, you have value. You have worth. You are special in the eyes of God. That's what's communicated by that word. So Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And verse 11 records her joyous and simple reply, no one, Lord. And that leads us to the third thing that Jesus does. He speaks a word of grace to her. It says, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. You know, Jesus summarized his mission on earth in John chapter 12, verse 47, when he said this, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Do you know that Jesus doesn't need to condemn us? Our conscience condemns us of our own sin. You know why you have feelings of guilt and shame? We feel guilty because we are guilty. Because we're sinners. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. And so this woman, she knew that she was guilty. The guilt and shame were written all over her face, but Jesus speaks this word of grace to her. Neither do I condemn you. But please understand, this is not cheap grace. Because Jesus knew exactly what he was about to do in just a short time from this. That he was going to go to a cross where he was going to take upon himself all of her guilt and shame. And all of our guilt and shame because of our sin. That Jesus was going to take upon himself on that cross, he was going to take the punishment that she deserved for her sin, and he was going to take the punishment that you deserved and that I deserved for our sin. That Jesus, the Bible says, was literally going to become sin For us, there upon the cross. And Jesus knew that the reason that he could speak this word of grace and forgiveness to her is because he knew exactly what he was going to do on her behalf. The fourth thing that I want you to see is that Jesus gives her this wonderful invitation. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then here's the invitation. Go and sin no And I think his tone in saying this was not an angry, teeth-clenched, no, you better not ever do that again. Get out of here. No. I don't think that was his tone at all. I I think there's a smile on his face. I think his tone is gentle. He's saying, hey, go. And sin no more. Now, I don't know that for sure, but I think when we get to heaven, you're going to find out that I was right on that one, all right? (laughs) Jesus' heart toward this woman is, hey, you don't have to live like this anymore. Now, it didn't mean she was never going to sin. We all sin. It's part of living in these bodies and living in this World, But what he was saying to her is you no longer have to be in bondage to that sin. That that sin doesn't have to be the thing that marks your life. You can be free. You can be fulfilled. That there's a better way to live. And I think the invitation is very clear that Jesus is saying that walking with him results in being, in being free from walking in sin. Walking with him results from being free of walking in darkness. In fact, the rest of the passage, I think, makes this even more clear. Look at verse 12. It says, Then Jesus spoke to them again. Now he's addressing the crowd, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's saying, I've come to give you life. You can be fulfilled, and you can be satisfied. And then notice verse 31. 
Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Listen. Sin in every form results in bondage to that sin. But Jesus came to free people from the bondage of sin to live in relationship with God. But here's how it happens. He says, you abide in me. You come to me. You abide in me. You allow my word to abide in you. In other words, you're staying connected to him and his word. It's living our lives by the word of God. It's getting our direction for our life by the word of God, not our culture, not the opinion of others, not even our own feelings. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you'll know the truth. And the truth, it brings freedom. And and then just to put an explanation point on this, what he's declaring here, notice what he says in verse 34. And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is saying, look, here is the choice. It's a choice that he gives to every man or woman living in sin. He says this, here's the choice. You can be a slave of sin or you can be my son. You can be a slave to sin or you can be my son. And I just want to say this today. If you are living in bondage to sin, Jesus would say to you today, hey, this can become your story. You can go. If you give your life to me, if you begin to, to walk with me, if you begin to abide in me and my word, that you can go and sin no more. That can be your story. Jesus gives to every man and woman who is bound in sin, the opportunity to start over. It's a beautiful story. It's an amazing story that illustrates to us how Jesus loves messy people. People's lives who have been messed up by sin, he came to rescue us. He came to give us another option. He came to say, hey, look, your life doesn't have to be defined by that. I love this story. Now, I'm going to make you a little bit, some of you at least, uncomfortable right now. And some of you are thinking, two weeks in a row, like really? Last week you're talking about hatred and prejudice, and what about now? Well, I want to ask you this question. And I want you to think with me on this, okay? Think through this with me. What if this woman was caught in the very act with another woman? Talking lesbianism. Would this story read differently? Would Jesus have reacted differently? It's an interesting question that really has two different reactions. On the one side, you have those who are pro-gay who would say, no way would Jesus call this a sin. It wouldn't even be an issue. If it was with another woman. And then you have those on the other side who would say, not only would he call it a sin, but he wouldn't even offer her forgiveness because homosexuality is the worst of all sins. And I don't mean to make anybody uncomfortable here. But I think that this is something that we need to talk about. Because this is prevalent. This is so much becoming a part of our culture that we're living in. And I think that this is a great story for us to consider That subject, homosexuality, is the hot topic of our day. It's the cause of our day and our culture. It's put before us in television shows and and movies as being the normal thing. It's being written into the curriculum of elementary school education in public schools. It is the major talking point of politicians in every political cycle. And recently, a Gallup poll 
that was given in 2022 said that 7.1% of the American population right now identifies as LGBTQ and 21% of Generation Z identifies that way. And because this is becoming such a huge thing in our culture, there are those in our culture who are are seeking to redefine and reclassify what traditionally has been viewed as homosexuality. And the redefinition goes something like this. They'll say, that's not a sin. It's a very acceptable and normal lifestyle. And you need to see it that way. You need to see it as being normal. In fact, you need to see it as even being a noble lifestyle because they say the person who's discovering this about himself or, or herself is living a more honest way, maybe a more authentic lifestyle, and they're living exactly the way that God made them. And in the same way that you would never tell a left-handed person that they needed to become a right-handed person, why would you tell somebody who is you know, expressing their sexual identity in this way that they should be something else? But here's the thing. Here's the thing, friends. As Christ followers, our view, our worldview, and our view of morality and sexuality has to be shaped by the Bible. And so this brings us back to the question. If she was caught in the very act with a woman, would Jesus have dealt with her differently? Would Jesus have called it sin? The answer is absolutely. Because Jesus is always true to Scripture. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality very much at all. It's only mentioned in seven places in the Bible. Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, Judges chapter 9, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in every single one of those passages where it mentions homosexuality, it is defined as being a sinful behavior that is contrary to God's plan and God's design for human sexuality. It's also interesting that the punishment given out in the Old Testament for homosexuality is the exact same for a person who's caught in in adultery. Leviticus 20.13 puts it this way, If a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So the Old Testament tells us that it was a sin that was punishable by death, just like adultery. Now, some would say, well, that was addressing men. What about women, with women? Well, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 1. He talks about a woman being with a woman, and he calls it a vile passion and that which is unnatural. And Paul and Jesus were both living in a culture where homosexuality was prevalent. It was prevalent in the Roman Empire. Fourteen of the fifteen emperors were homosexuals. And that's why Paul lists homosexuality in a list of things that he says that those who are practicing these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous, those who are, in other words, those who are not living, walking in a righteous way, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now here's what's interesting about that list. Why does Paul include idolatry in this group of sexual sins? I think the reason is this. Sexual immorality in any fashion, be it gay or straight, is really the worship of self. It's basically saying, I am choosing my way over God's way. It's saying, I think I know what is best for me rather than what God says is best for me. And so idolatry in its simplest form is the worship of self. It's also interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul goes on to say that those who are engaged in a sexual immorality type of lifestyle, he puts it this way, that they actually are sinning against their own 
body. So Paul's saying that sexual sin is different from any other sin because those who engage in it are sinning against their own bodies. They're sinning against themselves because, here's why he says that, when people are engaging in sexual morality in any form, it distorts who God created them to be. It distorts how he designed them to function. And when they do that, they're giving away a part of themselves that they're not going to get back again. But it's a distortion of how God created us and what he created us for. Think of it this way. You can try and use a butter knife as a screwdriver. Probably all of us in this room have done that before. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it meets the need, it does the job, but that butter knife was not meant to be a screwdriver. And eventually, it's not going to work. There's going to be that screw that is just too tight, and the butter knife can't you know, do it, and the butter knife is going to bend, or it's going to get scratched, it might even break, and eventually, it's going to have to be discarded. And in a similar way, that's what happens to our bodies when we engage in sex outside of God's plan. God said, look, I made sex. I created it, and I made it for you to enjoy it, but there is one place that I want you to enjoy it, and that is in the marriage bed. And I want you to enjoy it, he says. That's what the book of Song of Solomon is largely about. You know, our world tries today to say that the most gratifying sex is forbidden sex. We need to reclaim that, church. That the most gratifying sex is between two people that are living in a covenant relationship and marriage relationship with one another. And Jesus made it very, very clear, the biblical view of marriage, that it's between one man and one woman. And anything that is outside of that is outside of the design that God has made for our bodies. And when we're engaging in that, we're sinning against ourselves. So of course, Jesus would have called this sin even if she was with another woman. Because that's what the Bible calls it. And Jesus is always true to the Bible. But what about the, the second question? Would Jesus have still shown her grace and kindness? And I say, absolutely. And here's why. When we look at the woman in our story, Jesus isn't dealing with. I want you to catch this. When we look at this woman in our story, Jesus isn't dealing with her sexual preference. And apparently she had a preference for married men. He's not dealing with her preference. What's he dealing with? Her practice. That was the issue. That was the sin that, was, that she committed. Now this is important. Because instead of condemning her as a sexual being, what Jesus is doing is denouncing the way in which she chose to express her sexuality. And the way that she was choosing to express her sexuality was outside of God's plan for her. It was outside of God's design for how he intended that we, as being sexual beings would express our sexuality. So the answer to the question, would he have treated her the same, is absolutely. Jesus would have continued. He still would have treated her and saw her as a person. He would have treated her with respect and value. He would have seen her not as a lesbian, but he would have saw her as a woman who was trying to quench her thirst for love in the wrong way. He would have spoken to her in that sense of saying woman, gune, of endearment because he would realize that she was trying to quench that thirst for love in a way that can only be quenched by him. You see, the thing that we need to understand as we think about this topic, kind of cliche, but it's true. We've heard the saying that Jesus hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And that's true. Jesus hates adultery because of the damage that it does to families, how it destroys God's 
picture and pattern for marriage. But we see here, he loves the woman caught in adultery. Jesus hates prostitution, but he loves the prostitute. Jesus hates sexual immorality, but he loves the person who is involved in it. And Jesus hates homosexuality, but he loves the homosexual. He hates homosexuality in the sense of especially the agenda and the ideology when they want to take this and try to shove it into school curriculum. He hates that, but he loves the person caught up in that lifestyle. So he would have treated her with respect and he would have offered her the same grace and kindness by saying to her, neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn you. Because, you see, he knows, like I said before, that we are constantly dealing with our own shame and guilt because of our sin. That we know that we are guilty. Anytime that we're living outside of the will and plan of God, we deal with our guilt and shame, and we try to suppress the guilt and shame and deny it and redefine it. But deep down, we we know it's always there. It's one of the reasons why, according to the 2021 report by the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, gay and bisexual youths are five times as likely to have suicidal thoughts than their heterosexual counterparts, which I think is interesting in the sense that we're living in this culture where homosexuality is being accepted more and more, and yet suicide amongst gay people is on the rise. Why is that? Well, Jesus told us in John chapter 10, he says, the devil is a thief and a robber who comes to kill and rob and destroy. That's what he's seeking to do. He wants to ruin people's lives. But then Jesus countered that by saying, but I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. That's his heart. For every person, no matter what their sexual preference is. So Jesus would have treated her with the same. As a person, he would have treated her with respect, that she was valuable to God. He would have spoken the same gracious words. "I, I don't condemn you. That's not my purpose. That's not why I'm here. And he would have given her the same invitation. Go and sin no more. He would have said to her, look, you don't have to live this way. There is something better. And what this tells us is that Jesus is not put off by our sin. He's not repulsed by our sin. He doesn't run from our sin. No, He leans into us. When this world was full of sin and rebellion, what did He do? He leaned in. He left heaven and came down to this earth because He loved us. And He wanted to rescue us. And he came to satisfy that thirst for love that is in the heart of every single human being. And Jesus wants to provide the way and the power for us to now walk in the light and walk in God's design instead of in darkness. Instead of the way and the plan of the devil. Now, listen church. We need to be very, very careful that we don't make the assumption that this sin is out there. That this sin is the world's problem. Yeah, the world has brought it to light, big time. But listen, it's also an issue in the church. There are young people in our church struggling with same-sex attraction. I've had conversations with little boys and little girls from great Christian families who have said, I don't know why, but I'm attracted to little boys saying, boys, I'm not attracted to girls. And that's a hard one to explain. And the only way that I can explain it, that it's just a part, another evidence of the fall, of how sin has entered into this world because All of us here have a propensity to sin in different ways. All of us here have things that we are attracted to that if we acted on them could get us into big trouble, but the key is to not act on them. Same-sex attraction is real. It's not a sin, but it's a real 
issue. It only becomes a sin when it's acted on. In the same way that you can have a married man or woman can have an attraction to someone who is not their spouse, and the attraction is not a sin. The sin occurs when they start fantasizing about it. When they start flirting. The sin occurs when they act on it. And there are lots of people in the big C church today who struggle with same-sex attraction but to that person to those people jesus invitation would be the same hey abide in me follow me believe in me knowing i have your best interest at heart and i know christian people today who struggle with same-sex attraction but who are living vibrant lives celibate lives and here's why hear me on this they their lives are being satisfied by the love of Jesus alone. They're being satisfied by Him and in Him. And because of that, they're not looking to be satisfied by someone else. And that's the Lord's heart for every single one of us. He wants our lives to be satisfied by Him. But I also know others who were same-sex attracted or who have come out of a gay lifestyle, who actually ended up falling in love with a person of the opposite sex and are living radically fulfilled lives right now. Why? Because Psalm 37 verse 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. It's a promise. And what that means, it doesn't mean that as I delight myself in the Lord, He's going to give me whatever I want. What that means is He's going to take my desires and begin to mold them and shape them after His desire. And I've seen people who never ever thought that they would fall in love with someone of the opposite sex suddenly fall in love as they were delighting in the Lord. He changed their desires. And He changed their attraction. He can do that. But even if He doesn't do that, Know this, he loves you and he can, can and will fulfill you if you'll let him. He's saying, abide in me, walk with me, let me satisfy your thirst for love. Lastly, how do we deal with this? What do we do with this information? How do we apply this story as it relates to this part of our culture. Well, first of all, I would say we need to remember that we ourselves are not without sin. That we cannot be judge and executioner. We're unqualified because we're without sin. And if we are going to be repulsed by sin, let it be the sin in our own lives. Let's be repulsed by that and leave the judging of others to jesus our just judge but having said that that does not mean that we can't make a stand and shouldn't make a stand for righteousness we absolutely must do that we need to protest agendas and ideologies that are being introduced into school curriculum. We need people on school boards who are going to stand up and say, hey, that's not right. We need people. We need to elect people into public office that will make a stand for righteousness. We need to do that. But here's where we need, and listen to me close, I'm almost done. We need wisdom and grace on how to make a stand in the right way. And we need to learn from Jesus on how to differentiate between the act, how to differentiate between the agenda and the ideology and the person. And that's the hard thing. Because sometimes we get so wrapped up and irritated by the agenda and the ideology that we start just screaming our heads off, that's not right. And we come across as being so hateful. We need to find God's grace and His wisdom on how to differentiate between the ideology and the agenda, but to still see the 
person that God brings into our sphere of influence the way that Jesus does. To show, to see them as a person, to show them respect, to speak words of kindness and grace to them. Because, listen, Jesus loves them. And our friendship with that individual might be the first step into them allowing Jesus to work in their lives. Guys, this is a part of our culture. Some of you parents, you might end up having to deal with this with one of your kids. It's happened. I've seen it happen. And your kids, they need to know that you love them, that same-sex attraction is not wrong. They need to know how to not act upon that. They need to know how Jesus wants to satisfy them. It's important. And we need God's grace and wisdom and help for us to be lights in this dark world. Let's pray together. Lord, we admit to you that because of the culture and the agenda, the culture that we're living in and the agenda that is being just propagated, Lord, it's hard for us to find the balance in hating the sin but loving the sinner. So Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us grace. That we might represent you well to the world that we live in and people in this world who are seeking to quench their thirst for love and fill the void in their life in ways that are not going to fill it. But Lord, we know that you're the answer. We know that you love them. We know that you want to do great and awesome things in their life. And you've called us to be salt and light. To permeate this culture. To get close to people whose lifestyles we don't agree with. But to love them. To speak truth to them in love. So God, we pray today for your grace, your wisdom, in Jesus' name.